Hello, and thanks for listening to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. In this episode, we're talking about this rare uh, childhood cancer that's devastating, but we heard really nice message of hope from um, uh, Ranji Bindra. He's a doctor, associate professor of therapeutic radiology at Yale Cancer Center. Hey, Joe. I thought Ranji did such an elegant job of helping us to understand I guess in some ways, the separation from the emotional side of childhood cancer and the realities that we face. So he takes us down this really interesting journey of why assumptions made about childhood cancers have stalled in in many instances. And today we're going to talk very specifically about DIPG, but why these assumptions stalled treatments and how it sometimes just takes one brilliant mind and one discovery to flip those assumptions around and help us to see some light. Um, His lab has done just some amazing work to help us to understand why a very unexpected mutation in DIPG can be targeted um, with drugs that we have on the shelf. But then he asks us to put the brakes on and and give them a second to understand how these drugs can be used to target these cancers, which children, what is the penetrance into the central nervous system. Um, So again, setting aside this incredible emotional pull of childhood cancer and helping us to think about the reality of uh, really a full force effort to take cutting edge science and bring it into the clinical space. So I loved our conversation. His work is so impressive and, and I think you'll be really excited to hear what he has to say. Thanks. And, and I also want to give a special shout out to Nucor Steel and Nucor Louisiana in particular. They've been incredibly generous supporters of the American Cancer Society and a group of special employees at, at Nucor Louisiana have a have a vested interest in DIPG research. So very delighted to be able to share this with them in particular. And one more thing to add, Joe, on that note, a special thank you to these volunteers. And Ranji gives a huge shout out to the ACS that none of this would have been possible without the early investment that the ACS made in his work. Um, so I think it goes right back to all those amazing donors that made this happen. So thanks to all of you. All right, Ranji, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. We're so excited to have you. Great, thanks so much for having me. All right, well, let's get to it. We're gonna talk about a lot of things today and introduce some topics, but I wanna just hit the high notes for our listeners who maybe you're in the fortunate space of not thinking about radiation and cancer all the time. Can you just give us the backstory? Why do we use radiation to treat cancer patients? Um, How does it work? Yeah, so uh, radiation essentially is just composed of what we call x-rays, just like if you've ever had a broken bone and uh, gone to the doctor and gotten an x-ray and uh, they can actually look at your bones through your skin. And so we use just a higher dose of that, uh, which is particularly good at attacking uh, dividing cancer cells. So if, if that's the case, if it's going to more predominantly attack cells that are frequently dividing. It certainly seems it would be specific for cancer, but is there a particular type of cancer or a particular type of patient that might benefit more than others from radiation? Yeah. So I think, you know, there's a 
A lot of interesting research uh, in this area, and our, our group is very uh, focused on trying to identify which tumors would benefit most from radiation. Typically, the tumors that are, you know, solid masses that are difficult to cut out with surgery are perfect for radiation because we can give a very low dose of radiation every day, uh, which allows the normal tissue to recover, but the tumor cells, for a variety of reasons, have difficulty repairing the damage. Um, but really the most exciting um, uh, research on the horizon is try to understand which particular tumors, what types of mutations in the DNA of those tumors make them more sensitive to treatments that have radiation therapy. Hmm, interesting. Okay, so we'll delve more into that, to understanding which tumors have the greatest sensitivity. What about the flip side, though? Why isn't radiation a cure-all? Why, why doesn't it work all the time to eliminate all cancer? Yeah, it's a really good question. So if you think of the DNA of, of tumor cells as sort of the fabric that holds those tumors together. So when those tumors grow, they have to replicate, you know, three to four billion bases of DNA, and they have to do that faithfully. And radiation is a way to poke holes in that fabric or to disrupt that DNA sequence. But unfortunately, tumor cells are still quite good at figuring out ways to repair that damage. So while radiation alone is quite effective for a number of pediatric uh, and adult uh, brain tumors and other cancers, the vast majority of them will still eventually figure out a way to go around that or to fix that damage and continue to grow. Okay. So it sounds like radiation is a fantastic tool, can be sharpened perhaps with the use of other therapies, but one focus of your lab is to really hone in on the sensitivities of radiation and where it can be best used. Um, so let's talk about ways in which you do that. I, I know that one thing that your lab is, is really well known for is developing something called a radio sensitizer. Um, so just help us understand, first of all, what are radio sensitizers and maybe how do they work? Yeah, great. Uh, and and uh, near and dear to my heart is the is the ACS program because they funded our first grant actually on on this area, and we really built a lot of the platforms of our research on on that. Um, so we are very interested in finding uh, tumor mutations or the the actual mutations that drive those cancers. We try to find ways to target them with novel drugs that when we combine them with radiation, it's sort of a one-two punch. We believe that the same mutations that drive cancers actually create what we call Achilles heels or sort of soft spots that when we give radiation therapy, we can come up with specific drugs that then target those specific mutations which may have been good for the tumor to form but they're actually a weakness that can be exploited or targeted for a therapeutic gain uh, when we combine uh, a drug targeting that mutation with radiation. All right. So one of the places that you've taken not only this radio sensitizer technology, but a lot of the other work that your lab does is in trying to move the things that you're working on in the lab, so that kind of basic science, basic discovery to the clinic. And you've had uh, some pretty incredible success in pediatric brain tumors. So let's first establish what are some of the, the challenges that, yeah. that we face? And, you know, and I guess maybe let's think about how do we find those less toxic treatment for children's cancers? But uh, what are some of the biggest challenges that kind of keep you up at night? 
So I'd say one of the the biggest challenges for pediatric cancer research, honestly, is, is funding. And I think everyone's feeling very tight on uh, funding for research. But in the pediatric cancer space, I think most people agree that it's very, very difficult to get the research funded. Um, part of it is because pediatric cancers, you know, on average, the, the, the sheer number of cases are smaller than the adult population just because of um, the types of diseases that we see in the pediatric cancer space, um, but also just because of the climate and sort of the available funding uh, for pediatric cancers. A second issue is if you look at some of these tumors, like we'll talk about in a moment, called brain stem gliomas that really only affect a couple hundred um, children a year, uh, but we always say one patient in a town that gets one of these tumors who's, you know, three years old or so affects the entire community. Uh, and um, that's a pretty small number of patients. And so when you think about developing novel therapeutics for those patients, that small group of children that desperately need therapies, finding the research models to study that disease, uh, and also running clinical trials where you can recruit those patients for these trials is actually quite difficult. Um, and uh, in a moment, I can tell you uh, some of the solutions and some of the workarounds that we've uh, um, undertaken to, to address these issues. All right. Those are challenging gaps. So funding is tight. Um, you're thinking about smaller numbers of patients, um, challenges around model systems, clinical trials, recruitment. So you've certainly laid out some obstacles, but I, I want to start from a a place where you, as you said, you can give us some pretty specific examples of where, what these challenges are, how they are being met um, by your lab and others, and then maybe what future challenges can we continue to focus on. So I do want to spend a lot of time that we have left um, focused on a, a specific pediatric cancer, and that is uh, DIPG. So can you tell us what DIPG stands for? Um, this is a really tough tumor. Yeah, yeah. So DIPG is just a, a devastating disease. I encountered my first child with a tumor like this as a resident in radiation oncology at Sloan Kettering about uh, 10 years ago or so. And <clears throat> these are tumors of the brainstem. And so DIPG stands for diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma. The brainstem is sort of can be thought of the uh, grand central station for our minds and really our bodies. Really all of the movements and thoughts and how we sort of execute what we think about travels through the brainstem. So children with DIPG get tumors actually in that grand central station. I like to tell people, imagine if, you know, New York City grand central station came to a grinding halt one day, you could imagine the devastation. And so when a child, um, you know, has these, these, this tumor, they essentially stop being able to move, being able to talk. Um, many, many functions of daily life um, are disrupted. Um, unfortunately, these tumors, the, for the last 30 years, the overall survival has ranged between one to two years. So mm. most children diagnosed between the age of three to five is the most common age, uh, will not survive uh, the disease within about two years of diagnosis. Oh, good grief. What a, yeah. what a tragic disease. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I imagine just as tragic to be on the treatment side as on the side of, uh, as you said, patients and families and communities. So you've had a pretty incredible finding of late that has the potential to impact DIPG treatment. Um, but 
I think we need to back up a few steps. And can you help us to understand why this tumor that impacts, as you said, Grand Central Station, um, what are the current treatments that are used and, you know, why aren't they working? Why do we have this absolutely horrible survival rate um, in these kids? Yeah, it's a great, great question. So I, I break it down really to two major issues. Uh, obviously, there's many, but uh, the first issue is there was largely an assumption for the last 20 years or so that these tumors were the same as adult gliomas or glioblastomas, so adult high-grade gliomas as we call them. There was an assumption that these were just children that had unfortunately the same disease that the adults got, meaning the mutations were exactly the same. And because the, these tumors are located in the brainstem, um, most clinicians were very nervous to do tumor biopsies, where you go in and take a little piece of that tissue, because again, there could be a lot of um, morbidity and mortality associated with going in that area. Um, so most people just assumed it and then treated them with adult-based types of regimens, which were radiation, some standard chemotherapy. Um, and these, those therapies really have not worked. Um, to our surprise, uh, recently in the last five years, there's now been a push to biopsy these patients and with the idea that it actually turns out that it's not nearly as unsafe as we thought. And we've actually been surprised. And this is why despite all the um, you know, stress and anxiety about this disease, I, I do think we're on the verge of some major changes because those biopsies in the last five years have revealed that there's a whole new spectrum of tumor mutations that are very, very unique the DIPG, uh, and we would argue that those mutations can be targeted with novel therapeutics that have really never been tested before. Now, that's basically the first problem. Um, if I can go on to the second problem, uh, blood-brain barrier penetration. We've mm -hmm. always assumed, right, that drugs, and this is actually really all brain tumors, uh, is a problem. We've always assumed that these drugs, you know, get into the brain at some degree, in DIPG, the blood-brain barrier is even tighter in the brainstem. Hmm. And so we have a situation where we don't know the mutations or we didn't know the mutations, and the drugs that we were testing anyways probably weren't getting into the tumor. Hmm. And so those, in my mind, are, are really two of the biggest problems. And our, and our laboratory is very, very focused on um, addressing both of those issues. Wow, that's fascinating. So I, I think if I could summarize, what you've told us is there are basically two sets of assumptions that have been held in the scientific and clinical community for a long time that turned out to be untrue. So the first is that this DIPG was very similar to an adult cancer of the brain. And the second being that um, the drugs that would kind of typically be used to treat would have be able to access the site of the tumor. And it turns out that both of those assumptions were untrue and unfortunately led to a real lack of progress in treating this disease for a long time. Exactly. All right. So you, though, have shed, you and your colleagues, some really positive light on DIPG in recent months. Um, and I think that what you've discovered boils down to, as you said, that um, by our understanding through increased biopsy rate and uh, understanding more about these kind of unique mutations that were present in DIPG, that um, the tumor doesn't have it all together, right? that, that, <laughs> that you can target it and that it has, I guess, as you said, an Achilles heel. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what is this vulnerability that you found? And I, I guess, quite frankly, why is it so important? 
Yeah, yeah. So this is, you know, one of the a great story that really makes academia so fun because this story is about the persistence of a of a single graduate student. Actually, our laboratory's first graduate student about five years ago who just graduated and, um, you know, subsequently published in Nature Communications. But uh, we effectively modeled a single mutation that's only recently been discovered in DIPG. And um, believe it or not, it turns out that a subset of DIPGs have the same mutations that are found in breast cancer, mm. which again, you know, you, you wouldn't expect that, right? Completely different tissues, completely different patients. Um, and we asked the question, you know, does that tumor mutation create an Achilles heel or a vulnerability? And rather than actually assuming, you know, it did one thing over the other, as we just did a very focused drug screen and we used a very, very sound classical genetics approach, and we call this isogenic modeling. But all that means is we took a model glioma cell line that looks like the DIPG cells, and we created, the student in our laboratory actually created a cell line that literally just had the mutation or it didn't. Mm -hmm. And then we did a drug screen on those cells to actually find what drugs would be sensitizing to the tumor cells that have that mutation, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, what we found was very, very surprising. Um, we we were expecting to find um, a class of drugs called DNA repair inhibitors um, would be active against these tumors for a variety of reasons that we don't have time to go into, but it's something our laboratory has done a lot of pioneering work on. We were surprised to find that there was severe defect in cellular metabolism. So essentially mm. the furnace of the cell was broken when this DIPG mutation was, uh, was expressed uh, in, in this model cell line. Oh, that's so fascinating because the story that you laid out for us was that there were assumptions made by the scientific community which um, stalled, perhaps, treatments mm -hmm. for DIPG. Mm -hmm. And even though you knew that, you perhaps were going down the line after you found a unique mutation, you did a drug screen, you assumed that maybe drugs that um, were DNA inhibitors might work. Um, but it sounds like your grad student and probably uh, you and other folks in your lab are open-minded to think maybe this isn't the case. And, and it turned out it wasn't. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, no, exactly. And it's actually just on a side note, a real testament to foundation funding because some of the risks that we take uh, in the laboratory often require the flexibility and the openness of foundations for um, young investigators to take risks. Because we actually made this discovery, and you know, my lab's been open for about seven years, and we mm -hmm. made the discovery just a few years ago. Um, and so we found um, that a defect was present in a pathway called NAD metabolism. Mm -hmm. And that's NAD, which essentially is the currency uh, you can think of it as the dollar bill in the cell, <laughs> if that makes sense. So the cell actually needs to create a certain amount of NAD, and then it spends that NAD on cellular processes of metabolism, making the cell grow, repairing DNA, um, you know, gene expression, all sorts of things. Um, and what we found was, for some reason, when we expressed this DIPG mutation, it turned off key components of the NAD metabolic cycle. Um, again, very, very unexpected. Uh, it took us about a year to even convince ourselves because no one had shown this before and there was no link between NAD metabolism and DIPG. 
So help us understand. Yeah, I mean, so I can understand that, and I, I love your description of this dollar bill that the cell has to have, and it has to be able to spend it in order to divide. But help us understand why would this be specific to DIPG? All cells need to spend this money, right? All cells to just maintain life need to be able to divide and grow. So how do you, mm -hmm. can you talk us through how you might be able to take this observation and translate it to the clinic? Yeah, so, you know, the, the, the easy answer for this first is that we're still trying to understand why this DIPG mutation, you know, essentially turns off part of the NAD furnace or this currency cycle is disrupted. Um, but more, what is more important from a clinical perspective is knowing that the DIPG mutation and the, for the aficionados out there, the gene is called PPM1D and it's a mutation in this gene called PPM1D, um, knowing that it causes this defect makes these tumor cells sensitive to an entirely new class of drugs that had not been considered. And this is actually important because this class of drugs are called NAMT inhibitors. So it's, again, uh, all the vernacular and whatnot, but NAMPTI, so NAMT inhibitors. Believe it or not, these drugs had actually been tested in solid tumors in adults for over five to eight years or so, or five to ten years, and, um, and largely have been unsuccessful, and in part because there was no gene biomarker or predictor of patients that would respond. So the drugs have actually been shelved, and they've already been through phase one and two clinical trials. Our data suggests that actually those drugs likely will be effective against patients that have DIPGs, particularly those that have this mutation in PPM1D. Oh, fascinating. So you already have drugs that are sitting on the shelf, kind of ready to go because they've already been tested in those early stage safety clinical trials. And, and now you have what the community has been looking for, which is a tumor that could be targeted and a specific mutation within a subclass of that tumor. So um, it, it sounds like you can see the, the pathway to moving towards a clinical trial for DIPG patients. Um, could you walk us through that process a little bit? Exactly. And this is, um, <clears throat> this is kind of one of the most exciting parts of all this is the ability to translate some of the work that we do the laboratory directly in the clinic. And, and our laboratory is particularly obsessed with doing this as fast as humanly possible. And we leverage the fact that um, a lot of our group is composed of physician scientists or scientists that have an eye towards the clinic. And then we also have clinicians. Um, and, and part of my training as an MD-PhD um, has really equipped me with the ability to kind of see all those obstacles that you just sort of alluded to, which is you've got a patient population that's relatively rare and a subgroup of those patients have mm. the mutation and there's drugs that are on the shelf. So what we're doing right now is we're doing sort of a translational study trying to understand which drugs that have already been in clinical trials within this class of drugs called NAMT inhibitors um, will be active against the DIPGs. And we're doing this a lot of this is in anim animal models. But it actually now gets back to that second problem that I mentioned. Uh, so I mentioned, you know, the, you know, assuming that their adult tumors were the same for the mm -hmm. DIPGs and then blood-brain barrier penetration. So I think one of the biggest mistakes I've learned as a clinician scientist is um, to just run with any drug and just run it into the clinic, right? Here, we really have to think about CNS penetration. It turns out about 70 to 80% of the drugs in this class are not CNS penetrant. So what we're doing right now is a comprehensive study to try to identify 
which drugs that are in that arsenal actually have enough CNS penetration to be tested in DIPG. And the second alternative is to directly deliver the drugs into the brainstem. And believe it or not, even though that sounds like science fiction, we can now deliver drugs directly into the brain um, via a number of processes, uh, namely convection-enhanced delivery. Wow. So it sounds like you are taking what is ostensibly a needle in the haystack cancer Mm-hmm. That is absolutely devastating for patients, for their families, for their communities. And maybe you can thread that needle, but you're doing it in a way that is precise and thoughtful and and not to provide false hope, right? You found this class of drugs that looks like it could be helpful, but how do you get it to the right place, which in this case is... Um, uh, you know, as you said, the, mo- the most Im- important part, perhaps, of the body, right? The brainstem. So, um, ah, well, we're excited and hopeful. I-, I guess I, on that piece of hope, I-, I had one question that I wanted to ask you because of what you do and what you think about and all that you've seen. If you could just wave one magic wand and change one thing <laughs> about the mm-hmm. way that we treat, um, perhaps we'll narrow it to these uh, pediatric brain cancers. What-, what would it be? What would you change? Um, you know, I, I've been pretty adamant about this is I would kind of change the entire way that we're doing a lot of the clinical trials in the pediatric cancer space. I would wave a wand that would allow us to really test the most cutting edge, innovative bench science that's based on real sound, rational data and, and driving combinations that are based on very, very heavy preclinical science. And I think because pediatric cancers are so rare and because there's such an emotional component. You know, when Mm -hmm. we published this, we got a lot of press internationally because it was a team of, you know, five labs across the world that we led to do this. And, you know, people would send us emails and say, we've got to get in the clinic tomorrow and let's just get this drug and get it into patients. And again, the idea here is that this is treating patients, children with cancer is absolutely terrible, but we have to move forward very methodically, as fast as we can, but with the best science possible. So my, my magic wand be waved to try to get better drugs into the patients for kids, and I do think it's possible. Well, we are certainly excited about not only your discovery, but how you persevered. Um, thank goodness for that grad student and that project <laughs> and, yeah. and all the incredible work, um, and then we'll We'll keep our fingers crossed and and certainly be excited to continue to follow your work. I'd really love to know, and you mentioned this before, but is there a way that you you could share with us that ACS funding impacted your career? Yeah, so, you know, ACS was actually our first uh, big grant to the laboratory. We, you know, obviously now have R01 and NIH funding and whatnot, but um, I actually still remember the day my program officer from ACS called me (laughs) to to, uh, I still remember, I actually quoted, I'm sure he'll remember, I said, I said, you made my life. <laughs> I was in the stairwell, actually, just about a blo- uh, about a 500 feet away from this office. And, um, you know, one of the things about the ACS program is they invest in people and not just ideas, which hmm. is really, you know, important. So during the process of submitting your first grant and your revision and getting your comments back, they're really committed to trying to fund investigators to become self-sufficient. Uh, and in that manner, you know, a lot of the platforms of what we do uh, in the laboratory is from that first ACS grant because it really set the stage 
uh, for where we are now. We're you know a lab of about 16 people, and we have multiple bench-to-bedside trials. But it really does come back to us um, as ACS is one of the key enabling features for us. Wonderful. Well, we are excited that we made your life, and um, you know it comes full circle because I am I am positive that that patient community that you impact and will continue to impact that they feel the exact same way about you. So, um, but we are we are awfully glad to have invested in you. All right, one last question. So, yeah. A, a lot of our listeners um, listen to this podcast because they've been impacted by cancer, either they're patients or, or they have a cancer patient in their life. Um, is there a particular message that you would share with these listeners? Yeah, I think what I would say is the last, you know, I started my MD-PhD training in about year 2000, so we're almost 20 years out here. I, I can say for the last five years or so, we're really finally starting to see revolutions. We are looking at things like immunotherapy, where literally at ESMO, the European conference that just concluded, we are having long-term survivors of melanoma that would have been dead within months that are years and years out. Um, similarly, we're finding tumor gene mutations that now in the clinic, we're devising new drugs to target them, and we're having you know radical changes in tumor sizes and huge differences. Uh, in the amount of time that people are going without these these cancers. So I think it's just a very, very exciting time, and I always like to counsel people even in my clinic that the good news is people, as a society, we're investing in research and better cures and therapies, and I think we're now finally at the point where we're going to just continue to start seeing more and more changes to the face of diagnoses of cancer uh, for patients and their families. Wonderful. Well, Ranjay, we appreciate what you do. I Certainly appreciate that message of hope, and um, we'll continue to be hopeful in, in you and um, all the work that you're doing. So thanks for sharing your time with us today. We appreciate it. Great. Thanks so much for having me.